0: Hello, I'm Faisal Pervez, a South Asia analyst here at Stratfor, and this podcast is brought to you by Stratfor Worldview, our premier digital publication for objective geopolitical intelligence and analysis. Individual, team, and enterprise memberships are available at worldview.stratfor.com slash subscribe.
1: I've heard Jordan's economy referred to as a colander, as a sieve. It's so structurally unsound that it receives a lot of money, but it just sort of trickles through. There's a lot of work to be done in reforming Jordan's economy, and that's one of the big battles ahead.
0: Welcome to the Stratfor podcast, focused on geopolitics and world affairs from stratfor.com. I'm your host, Ben Sheen. Despite artificial borders dictated by imperial politics instead of geography, limited natural resources and close proximity to regional conflicts in Iraq and Syria, the Kingdom of Jordan has managed to remain quite stable since its founding in 1946. Today, Jordan also plays host to nearly three-quarters of a million refugees, according to the United Nations, and 90% of them are fleeing the ongoing conflict in Syria. For a closer look at the delicate balance the nation has struck so far and the geographical constraints it faces going forward, we're joined by Middle East and North Africa analyst Emily Hawthorne and senior analyst Mark Fleming-Williams for a discussion about the geopolitics of Jordan in this episode of the Stratfor podcast.
2: My name is Mark Fleming-Williams. I'm a senior economy analyst here at Stratfor and today I'm joined by Emily Hawthorne, who is our MENA analyst. Emily Today, we're going to talk about Jordan, and I want to be very open and clear and upfront about it, but the Middle East and Jordan is not an area I know. Uh, it's, not, it's not one of my fortes, so um, I'm going to be asking you questions to which I probably don't know the answer, so so hopefully, hopefully that's going to be the case for our listeners as well, that we can all learn at once. So looking at the map of Jordan, which I don't think necessarily our listeners will be doing at the same time. Could you just start by just giving us a little tour of where Jordan is, just a little introduction to its geography, who its neighbors are, that kind of thing?
1: Jordan is really in the core of the region of the Middle East that is called the the Levant. And it is surrounded by Israel, Syria, Saudi Arabia, Iraq. It has a little bit of coastline on the Red Sea. It's really pretty landlocked. It does have a very fertile east bank, the Jordan River of biblical fame, runs along its western border. And that river is really important for Jordan's agricultural production, especially because the vast majority of the country is desert. And those deserts are are known as the Syrian and Northern Arabian deserts. These deserts just open up into these vast expanses where there really is no population there. There's no arable agricultural production there. And Jordan, while it does have that important river on the west side, it doesn't have a lot of resources. It has to import a lot of resources for domestic energy and to supply its population. So Jordan doesn't have an ideal picture in terms of resources. And in terms of being sort of in the crux of an area that is prone to, certainly right now in the 21st century, prone to a lot of instability, Jordan is is not well located. It does get pulled into a lot of conflict that way.
0: Interesting.
2: So Jordan and a lot of the Middle East has been, the borders have been drawn in a manner which isn't necessarily uh, organic or natural. The borders were largely drawn by colonial powers in the past. Could you just paint the picture a little bit as to kind of where Jordan comes from and, and how it came into being?
1: Yeah, this is interesting because you are absolutely correct that the 20th century Jordan were drawn, you know, after World War I. But this area that Jordan was in, it was referred to as Jordan and the capital was referred to as Amen, which is still known as today, as far back as the Umayyad Empire, which is 600s, 700s AD. And so this area has been a crossing point. That's what the Levant is known for, sort of a crossing point of trade, a low-lying area that is easy to invade, easy to cross And that's what Jordan and Syria and Iraq together, their borders together, that desert throughout history has become part of so many different empires and subject to a lot of trade activity and and war and sort of flip-flopping of different capitals. And Jordan was really important during the Umayyad Empire because of the importance of Damascus at that time. When the capital of the Muslim dynasty, the Muslim world, moved to Baghdad, Jordan and Amman became a little bit less important at that time.
2: So it moved to, to Baghdad from, from Cairo, from Egypt? It be? No, it
1: was from Damascus. So Syria, Damascus, which is, Egypt. if you look at a map of the Middle East, one thing I think that strikes people if you haven't looked at a map of the Middle East is just how close a lot of these capitals in the Levant are. If you look at the distance between Damascus and Beirut, and Jerusalem and amen they're all very, very close. So you have all these, you know, national borders and intense border security now. But, you know, before the Ottomans swept through the area, and even during the Ottoman period, these were really commonly used trade routes.
2: So bring it forward to the 20th century. How did today's Jordan come about?
1: So you have, of course, a long period, centuries when the Ottomans, after beginning of the 1500s, when Ottoman forces invaded, Jordan was part of that. And then, At the end of the era, the Ottoman era, it's well known that there, of course, was this breakup of a lot of the former Ottoman territories to a lot of the imperial powers. And there was a ceding of those areas to the control of certain local allies that had worked alongside the imperial powers. When you look at Jordan, it was actually not a very desirable area. You know, you had the mandate of Syria, which the French took control of. You had the Palestine mandate, which the British took control of. And the Transjordan was a part of that. And actually, the local local ruler that was given sort of control over this area, he really didn't want it. And it was not viewed as strategic. But Abdullah became the emir of Transjordan in 1921. Eventually, Jordan did declare its independence in 1946. Abdullah became the king of Jordan. And then his descendants still rule over the kingdom today. And it's still the Hashemite kingdom of Jordan.
2: So we've got the Hashemite kingdom. And that, as you say, the continuity runs all the way through the 20th century. We've still got the Hashemites in control. So if you could just introduce them a little bit, who are they? And, um, and also, how do they relate to neighboring states? Because a lot of these tribes, I think, have got connections and relations, haven't they?
1: Yes. And the Hashemites trace their lineage back to a close relative of the Prophet Muhammad that was living in what is now modern day Saudi Arabia. The connection to Jordan comes when you had a leader named Sharif Hussein, and he was appointed the Sharif and emir of Mecca in 1908 by the Ottoman ruler at the time. Of course, this is just before the Ottoman Empire broke up. But he helped the British, some of the imperial forces in the Arab revolt against the Ottomans in 1916.
2: We're talking Lawrence of Arabia time now.
1: Exactly. We're talking this, this period of time when some of the local Bedouin tribes, some of the local Bedouin forces and the different Arab tribes united under Sharif Hussein. And he was sort of named king of the Arab lands, king of the Hejaz, which is that region of Saudi Arabia. So he was rewarded for his work in this by, you know, his sons were given leadership over what is now Jordan and what is now Iraq. And that happened in 1921. So his son Abdullah, the leadership then went to Talal and then it went to Hussein and then it went to Abdullah II, who is king today. So it's a very clear lineage. But because the Hashemites have that connection to those original companions of the Prophet Muhammad in Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabia and the royal family there has a strong connection with the royal family in Jordan. And really, any of the Arab tribes that can trace lineage back to those original companions of the Prophet, they have a connection to the Hashemites as well. So this has been a part of Jordan's ability to have a strong A strong bit of legitimacy in the Islamic world and in the Arab world at large.
0: We'll get back to our conversation on the geopolitics of Jordan in just one moment. But if you're interested in exploring the geopolitical realities and constraints facing nations and how that continues to shape their actions, be sure to visit us at Stratfor Worldview. This intersection of history, politics, and geography is at the core of all our work and the foundation of Stratfor's unique methodology. It drives the analysis and forecasting we produce each and every day to help make sense of an increasingly complex world. If you're not already a Stratfor Worldview member, you can learn more about individual, team and enterprise access at worldview.stratfor.com. And while you're there, be sure to check out our series of short geographic challenge videos. That's where our team uses animated maps and graphics to outline the primary geopolitical constraints and opportunities facing nations. We'll include some links in the show notes. Now to part two of our conversation on the geopolitics of Jordan, with Stratfor's Emily Hawthorne and Mark Fleming-Williams.
2: Looking at the map, we've got Jordan. It's, It's situated in a very hot area. We've got Syria and Iraq on two borders. We've got Israel on another border. And yet Jordan has had the same family in charge for 100 years. How are those two things possible?
1: And this is a question that people ask about Jordan all the time. And it's a really important question because it defies logic somewhat that under so much pressure, Jordan has not seen the type of conflict over the last decades that many of its neighbors have seen. This doesn't mean that Jordan is immune to conflict or instability. Jordan does struggle with the development of terrorist organizations within its borders, but it has a very strong military and security forces that help suss out plots before they can metastasize. That's one thing is that Jordan has built up its security forces in a a very profound way. Another thing is that Jordan does have a varied ethnic makeup. A lot of Jordan is comprised of different waves of refugees and migrants that have come to settle in Jordan over the decades. Jordan became an independent kingdom in 1946. In 1948, you had the Nekbah, the West Bank, and Israel claimed a lot of Jerusalem, prompting thousands and thousands of Palestinians to move across the Jordan River into Jordan. And most of these Palestinians have not left. And then you have other waves of, of immigration from Iraq. And now, in the last seven years, we've had incredible waves of migration from Syria. That said, the royal family and the government, they try to keep on top of all these different groups by really making sure that they have enough foreign aid to keep refugee camps running and providing services. That's one thing we can talk about is those foreign relationships.
2: It seems to me what you're telling me is that Jordan is like the spare room of the, the Middle East, and that it seems to be that anyone who's kind of leaving the neighboring countries ends up kind of stumbling into Jordan and, and finding a room for the night. Does that mean that Jordan in a way is not really an, an active player, an agent of its own destiny in, in the Middle East? Is it more a recipient of what other people want?
1: That is an apt way of looking at Jordan historically. Because it has been so stable, it's emerging now as more and more of a strategic actor in the Middle East, but it still is not a major power because it doesn't have its own sources of wealth generation. But yeah, there's, there's a really interesting way to look at what those waves of Palestinian migration to Jordan have given to it over the years. I mean, they've comprised over half of the population population. And these Palestinians, especially from the first waves of migration, they call themselves Jordanians, but they will proudly, you know, identify as, as Palestinian as well. But they're part of Jordan. So they've become part of the national fabric. And even though these borders famously were drawn you know, because of the Sykes-Picot Agreement, Jordanians of all different nationalities originally have really fleshed out those borders and have built up this narrative. So, I think that's one thing is that the royal family over the years, especially King Hussein, who was king for decades up until nineteen ninety nine, really told a good narrative that Jordanians could be a part of. But the Palestinian migration, you know, the the Palestinian issue and the enduring unsolved conflict between Israelis and Palestinians, this is a great thorn in the side of of Middle East peace. And all the other Arab states feel similarly about the Palestinian cause and that they want them to be able to return home and have their own state. Well, Jordan has become a place for them to live, supposedly temporarily. And that has given Jordan sort of a, a vaulted status of hosting a whole generation of Palestinians. And this is valuable for the rest of the Middle East in that they've sort of served as their home.
2: How would you characterize Jordan's kind of role in the region? It was obviously it's been involved in invasions, Arab invasions against Israel in the past. It doesn't feel to me like like the leader. How does Jordan manage the tensions surrounding it?
1: Well, one, Jordan doesn't get deeply involved in a lot of the conflicts in the Middle East any more than it has to just to secure its own security. For example, Jordan has very capable security forces. Part of that is thanks to decades of agreements with the United States and with the UK to train up Jordan's security forces, but they use them to directly protect Jordan. They don't use them to sort of deploy abroad and conduct an intervention. You know, Egypt in the 60s deployed Egyptian troops to Yemen. That's not something that Jordan has done unless it's alongside, you know, a much broader Arab League mission. So Jordan, for example, you know, has been active in the Syrian civil war, but really has only worked alongside Syrian rebels in the area just adjacent to Jordan. So it tries not to get involved in too many of the conflicts in the region. It also has a strategic peace agreement with Israel that was sort of worked by Hussein in the 90s. And that has given Jordan something that a lot of the Arab states don't have, which is this ability to work proactively with Israel and to benefit from having sort of an open relationship with them and and share intelligence. And that's, that's another thing is that Jordan is known to have capable intelligence services. They're in a strategic neighborhood, a hot neighborhood. They do have a lot to share in terms of intelligence. And they use that to their advantage in agreements with regional players and with outside players as well. And really, Jordan wants to be everyone's friend with Russia, with the UK, with the EU, with the United States and with all these regional powers. So it doesn't like to be forced to one side or the other. And they're very good at staying on top of that balance.
2: So we've got a few lines drawn in the Middle East at the moment and, and clear uh, alliances in place and obviously, you know, friction between uh, the UAE and Saudi Arabia and Qatar and um, and obviously the alliance is being drawn up in Syria. Can we clearly say within these, within these regional engagements that Jordan is on this side and not the other? And if so, who are its friends?
1: If you had to lay out Jordan's allegiances, it's going to be very close with most of the Arab Gulf states. Part of that goes back to that Hashemite connection. Part of it is the fact that Jordan is overwhelmingly a Sunni Muslim country. And it also is very closely allied with the United States and the United States uh, regional alliances in the region fall strongly with the Arab Gulf states and not with Iran. But at the same time, Jordan maintained an open relationship and, and pragmatic relationship with Syria throughout the course of the war, as well as with Iraq, even though they were fighting on the side of the of the Syrian rebels. But To keep all of Jordan's options open, they try to make sure that they don't shut off any relationships. And you can see this sometimes, you know, in the wake of the GCC Qatar crisis of last June, Jordan came out in support of what the UAE and and Saudi Arabia and Egypt were doing and trying to clamp down on Qatar's independence. But they didn't move as, as firmly and strongly as Egypt or some of the other close GCC allies in the region because they don't want to have to pick sides.
2: Um, We've got a very fast moving surroundings to Jordan at the moment. We've got civil war in Syria. We've got a lot of mixing up going on in in Iraq in recent years. It's still not entirely clear how the chessboard is going to settle if it does. So it's hard to talk about the future. But is there anything we can say with certainty about Jordan's future? Is there a goal that they're moving towards? Is there anything which um, any, any clarity that we can try and divine for where Jordan is headed?
1: One of the big variables for Jordan that will determine its future is what happens with the latest wave of refugees that have come into the country, specifically Syrians. You know, we just were talking about how Jordan has been able to assimilate and put together a, a very diverse population under sort of one government. But the newest waves of migration, Jordan is actually pretty concerned about and the king has, has appealed to the EU and to the UN and to others that they need more monetary help and that Jordan is is sort of at the brink what its economy can afford to do. So I think that that is a big question that Jordan has, and they want to make sure that they still have a lot of international aid coming into the country. But I've heard Jordan's economy referred to as a colander, as a sieve. It's so structurally unsound that it receives a lot of money, but it just sort of trickles through. There's a lot of work to be done in reforming Jordan's economy. And that's one of the big battles ahead is actually patching up a lot of those big gaping holes in sort of labor reform and tax reform and all this. All that to say, the constitutional monarchy system that they've set up, um, where there's a prime minister and, and a government that can issue a lot of rulings and laws, that kind of shields the monarchy from a lot of public dissent over the economy. So, you know, I think it's safe to say that the monarchy still has a lot of control over making sure that Jordan stays stable, and they can sort of recycle in and out prime ministers and parliament members to sort of take some of the heat. But the economy is something to watch, the refugees are something to watch. And Also, how Jordan deals with the enduring threats of the Islamic State in Iraq and Syria and how it keeps it from forming new militant groups in its own borders. That's going to determine Jordan's ability to remain stable moving forward.
2: So basically, they've had a very strong performance at managing to remain stable through a very difficult hundred years. And they'll be doing extremely well if they carry on managing to remain stable through the next hundred
1: Yes. And there, there are interesting things about Jordan, you know, modern Jordan. They have a, a booming but small entrepreneurial tech sector. The government's nurtured that. There are some unique things about Jordan and its diversity has given it some sort of strength. And it's very open. It's very open to tourism. It's very open. It's easy to travel in Jordan. It's easy to do journalism in Jordan. And this is also something that I think the government strategically wants to maintain because it helps it cultivate those positive relationships with outside powers that continue to support Jordan and want to keep it the way it is.
0: Thanks for joining us for our conversation on the geopolitics of Jordan with Stratfor's Emily Hawthorne and Mark Fleming-Williams. For our latest analysis related to Jordan and connected geopolitical trends today, be sure to visit our Jordan page at Stratfor Worldview. We'll include a link in the show notes. And in case you're not already a Worldview member, you can learn more about individual, team and enterprise access at worldview.stratfor.com slash subscribe. Worldview members can also contribute to this conversation and engage with Stratfor's analysts and editors in our members-only forum. And I'd also like to give a quick shout-out to CK08IRL for their five-star review on iTunes. They wrote this about the podcast. Focused, spot-on coverage of current geopolitical issues. Dives underneath the headlines to uncover the trends in regions around the world. Thanks so much for that. If you'd like to leave a review, you can do so at iTunes or wherever you listen. We really appreciate your feedback. Or if you have a question or even an idea for a future episode of the podcast, email us at podcast at And for more geopolitical intelligence, analysis and forecasting that reveal the underlying significance and future implications of emerging world events, follow us on Twitter at Stratfor.